invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. When's the last time you saw something remarkable? Something that just took your breath away. Something that you just stood there kind of with your mouth open wide. Whether it's the Grand Canyon or Mount Everest, maybe just the ocean. Maybe in the last few days you just stood on the sand right by the ocean and just looked out and thought, wow, how awesome that is. The stars in the sky. One of the things that made at least regional news, I don't know if it made national news or not, was a young man, a teacher in North Carolina, just a few weeks ago, his class bought him some sunglasses or some special glasses. This guy was born colorblind. So he had never seen color. Everything was just kind of a shade of gray or brown. Can you imagine that? Some of you here may be colorblind. i got other friends that are colorblind. Here's a picture of the guy. His name is Trent Hopkins. That's not him there. That's him. His students loved him enough that they spent over $300 on these glasses that allowed him for the first time ever to see color. In fact, the sign he's holding, he wouldn't have been able to read that just a few weeks ago because the green on the green would have just looked like green. In fact, it would look like brown or gray. Interesting, Trent actually served on staff here. Did any of y'all see this news? Did y'all see this on the news? I see a few folks. I emailed him the other day and told him we were going to use this as a, as a sermon illustration. He was just reminding me just how awesome it was that somebody loved him enough to warn him to be able to see like, like they could see. So he can see color now. He can see the rainbow and see that it's not just a blob. It's distinct colors. Isn't that incredible? That's what the Apostle Paul is about to do for the believers in the church in Ephesus. I want you to follow along as we read verses 18 through 23 of chapter 1. And, and I really believe the Apostle Paul is like he's holding up a precious gemstone and just pointing out facets on the gemstone. And keep in mind, he's written this to a church in Ephesus. This letter, we believe, would have circulated throughout that whole region, but it was specifically written to the church assumed most of the people in the church were believers. So what he's telling them is, this is what you as believers have. And he's saying, I, I just pray you'd know that. So look at verse 18, Ephesians chapter 1. He said, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the mighty working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. First thing I want you to see is a sight worth seeing. I want you to see the Apostle Paul is seeing something that the church primarily had not seen. He knows these people well enough to know, yes, you've trusted Christ as your Savior, but you haven't had your heart fully enlightened to what is already yours. It wasn't something that was coming. It wasn't something that God was holding out on them. It was something that was already theirs. In fact, he prays at least two prayers in, in Ephesians. It's interesting. The first prayer is for something they would know. 
The second prayer over in chapter 3 is something they might be. So he says the eyes of your heart, literally the vision of your heart. And you're thinking, wait a minute, my heart doesn't have eyes. <laughs> we got to understand the way the people of that day who weren't real blessed with understanding anatomy, it wasn't the mind as much as it was the heart that was the center of knowledge and wisdom. If they were talking about feelings, they would use the term bowel, believe it or not. They talk about your stomach, and sometimes we feel stuff in our stomach. But this is the heart. He's saying, I'm praying that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. Literally, Paul says, I'm praying that someone would flip on the light switch because you've been walking in darkness. I want you to close your eyes for a minute and put your hands over your eyes. Now open your eyes and take your hands off. That's the picture Paul is trying to get them to understand. That you've been, you've placed your faith in Christ, but you're still not seeing the magnificence of Christ and, and the power that is at work within you. So there's three things that he says, I pray you would know. In fact, the word he uses for know is also translated elsewhere in the New Testament as see. It's the Greek word ido, and it means to see or to know. So he says, first of all, I pray that you would know. I pray that you would see. I pray that the light bulb would come on. You'd have one of those aha moments over the hope of his calling. Now, if they're believers, they've been called to Christ. They've come to Christ in faith. But Paul says, I pray you'd understand, that you would know, you would walk in the hope of that calling. Have you ever been around people that seemed hopeless? One of the worst places to be is at a funeral of someone who didn't know the Lord. There's no hope there. But I've also been at funerals of people that did know the Lord, and it was more of a celebration. It was understanding this person, this man, this woman lived their life well. They're going to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. So their funeral is somewhat of a, of a celebration. Yes, you're sad that they're gone, but you understand they're in the presence of their Savior. But you don't have to go to a funeral to see people without hope. You can just walk the streets of Myrtle Beach. You can see it on the beach today. People who don't know the Lord, are trying to do anything they can to cram happiness into their life. And it's very fleeting. They spend a lot of money on it. And they may have happiness for a while, but they never experience the joy of the Lord that was intended for them. So he said, I pray you'd understand the hope of his calling. In fact, the ancient world, the world that Paul writes into, was a world without hope. Here's a quote from that era. Not to be born at all is by far the most fortunate. The second best is to die as soon as one is born. Can you imagine living your life that way? You know, it would really been better if I was never born. No, listen, we have hope. We have hope in Christ. And our hope depends not only on His goodness, but on His grace. My hope is not based on my performance. My hope is not based on how good I've been. My hope is based on how good God is, but more than that, upon His grace on what I don't deserve. So because of that, if you're a Christian, you have hope today. Even if something in front of you seems hopeless, have hope. So Paul says, I pray that they would see and understand the hope of his calling, not your calling, his calling. He's called you. The riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. We, we've been looking... Throughout the first chapter, that word inheritance has occurred many times. And the first inheritance that you have is salvation. Again, you get that not based on your effort or your performance. It's 
It's, it's the hope of his calling and it is an inheritance that he's given you. And I love the richness of the words that he uses because he doesn't just say, pray you to understand your hope, your, your inheritance, but the riches, the wealth, the abundance of the glory of his inheritance. That's the possession that you have in Christ. The third thing that he prays, the surpassing greatness of his power. Again, a, a meaty word, sur, surpassing, literally means to throw beyond the usual mark. And Paul says, I pray you'd understand the surpassing greatness of his power, the magnitude of the dynamite, miraculous power. The word most often used, translated power in the New Testament, is the Greek word dunamis, where we get the word dynamite from. Let me just ask you something. Are you walking in that kind of power? What Paul was looking at was a church that wasn't. They weren't understanding the hope of their calling. They weren't understanding the inheritance. And they weren't understanding the power they were intended to walk in. The surpassing greatness of his power. This is how you live the Christian life. You, you live it not based on your power. I was doing a camp a few years ago, and one of the songs the worship leader sung was, I pray my strength doesn't fail. I said, man, my strength fails all the time. The song ought to be, I pray his strength doesn't fail, and it won't. And here's the cool thing. God doesn't just give you power. He is your power. As he lives that power out through your life, it's not something he just says, open up, let me give you a spoonful of power for today. Because, folks, our power is weak. But his power is miraculous, supernatural, dynamite, explosive. That's what's living in you. But Paul said, I just pray the light bulb would come on for you to get that. I'm praying that today for the church. Not just this body of believers, but the church in America, the church in the world. That we would understand the power. Jesus, one of the last things he said to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, before he ascends into heaven, Acts 1.8, he says, But you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. This is how you live the Christian life. Do you feel defeated in the Christian life? You shouldn't because you have the power of God working in you. So Paul explains to them a sight we're seeing. In fact, the, the hope of his calling really refers to something that's already happened. It's in the past. The inheritance applies to today, but it's also going to be fully realized in the future. But the power represents the present. So Paul's praying for both something in the past, something in the future, future, but also something in the present. And then he shows this powerful position. He shows what he's done in Christ, the working of the strength of his might, and he displays that strength of his might, first of all, by raising Jesus from the dead. Jesus went to the cross. He didn't just pretend to be dead. He was dead. They pierced his side with a spear. Blood and water flowed out, separated. Jesus was dead. Jesus was placed in a tomb. And it was the power of God that raised him from the dead. And that is our hope. That that same power that worked in Christ to raise him from the dead is working in us to raise us from the dead. But more than that, 
That's the power at work in you right now. Don't, don't raise your hand, but think about that for a minute. Are you seeing the power of God displayed through you? If you live your entire Christian life and everything you ever see happen can be explained by human effort, that's a sad thing. There ought to be regular times that you step back and say, that was a God thing, that was a miracle. That could only be explained by the power of God at work. Just ask yourself the question, when's the last time you saw that? The same power that rose Jesus from the dead, the same power that said, get up and live, is the power at, at work in you. Do you see any evidence of that? There's a lot of people that can profess to be believers. But you look at their life, and there's very little evidence of God even being there. That ought to be a wake-up call. That ought to be a time to say, step back and say, I wonder why that is. Because if dynamite is in you, it ought to be erupting regularly where you see that. So God has raised him from the dead. He also has seated him at his right hand. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Well, when do you sit down? You sit down when your work's finished. Now, Jesus is still at work on planet Earth, but he's doing it from a position of rest. He has accomplished the mission for which he was sent, which was to live a perfect life, die on the cross, rise from the dead three days later. Victory over sin, victory over death. He's seated at the right hand of God, a position of supreme privilege and authority. And where is he? In the heavenly places. I want you to understand something. We're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. The victory has already occurred. Jesus accomplished the victory on the cross. So because of the fact I'm a believer, a child of God, there's victory in place. And he seated him in the heavenly places far above. The word literally means above, upward, or greatly higher. It's like Paul ran out of adjectives to describe it, but he's saying, is, think about above and it's above that. Think about higher, it's higher than that. And five things, all rule. Literally, Jesus is above every king, every prince, every president, every prime minister, every chairman. Jesus is above all that. Because he's been placed there by God in a position of authority at the right hand of the Father. He's been placed above every authority. Whoever thinks they're in charge... Jesus is in charge of those in charge. He's placed above every authority. He's placed above every power. Again, that word dunamis, dynamite, miraculous power. He's above that. He's above every dominion. It's the word lordship. Anybody that would be referred to as Lord on this planet, Jesus is above that. And I love this one. He's above every name that's ever been named. If you invoke the name of anything, if you name drop anything and say, hey, well, I'm going to get in because I know this person. Or I'm here on the authority of this person and you name a name, Jesus' name is above that. Not only in this age, but the age to come. I love Philippians 2, 9 through 11. 
it talks about, Philippians 2 talks about the fact that Jesus didn't, didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Took on the form of a servant, became obedient even to the point of death. Then you get to verse 9. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you understand that? The name of Jesus is above every name that could possibly be named. And one day, the day is coming when every knee will bow. And you think, well, who, whose knees does that mean? Well, it means your knees. But see, we're already bowing. We're already confessing. But it also means anybody on earth that has ever tried to place themselves above God. Anybody that's ever said, I want to stamp out Christianity or die trying. Anybody like that, their name will become nothing because the name of Jesus. And through maybe clenched teeth, they will have to acknowledge, he is Lord. Does the devil have knees? Yeah. One day, even the devil himself will have to bow and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. The devil, the same one that thought he could put his throne above God's throne, that's how dumb Satan is. Satan looked at God and said, he's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's all-present. I think I can take him. And tried to put his throne above the throne of God Almighty. And he's cast out of heaven. And he has a little bit of power now. But one day, even he will have to do what Philippians 2 said and what Ephesians 1 says, that his name's above every name. His name will be proclaimed as Lord, boss, master, the one in charge, not only in this age, but the age to come. And then the last thing, a, a supreme Savior. Not only is every person inferior to his name, they're subject to his name. God has placed him at the right hand of the Father, and he's put in subjection everything under his feet. You and I don't quite get that like they do in the Middle East. If you show the bottom of your foot in the Middle East, it's a, it's a great offense. To throw your shoe. Somebody threw their shoe at one of our presidents a few years ago, and it was to show utter contempt. And that's what Paul is referring to when he said, everything's been placed in subjection under his feet, and he's given him head over all things. To the church. I want you to get this. He's the head over all things. He's the head of the church. Now, your body will not function at all without the head. You could lose a part of your body and still function, but you can't lose the head and still function. Jesus is the head of the church. Let me tell you what that doesn't mean or what that means is not. Number one, the pastor is not the head of the church. Here's what happens when pastors leave churches. Sometimes people leave. Well, Jesus hadn't left. If he has, then run from that church. Okay? Hear me. Are there, are there places that I know of where the pastor's left, but Jesus is still there, and people kind of think, well, I was following the pastor. You were following the wrong thing. Jesus is the head of the church, not the pastor, not some member, not some person. Heard a deacon one time say, I, Pastor, I was here when you got here, and I'll be here when you're gone. He kind of thought he was in charge. Well, bless his heart. Jesus is the head of the church. But also, are there such places as churches that are still going through religious motions where Jesus ain't even there anymore? Yeah. 
In Revelation, it says in chapter 3, I stand at the door and knock. He stands at the door of the church knocking. You're thinking, how do you have church without Jesus being there? People do it. Because they're more in love with religion and tradition. And as long as the tradition continues, people are happy. But it's lifeless. God's not there anymore. If Jesus is the head of your church, then you pour your heart into that church. If he's not, you find a church where he is. It finds its fullness in him. The church is the full expression of Jesus Christ. So when you talk about the church, understanding you're talking about the body of Christ. It's the word called out ones. That's who Paul's writing to. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus. Other churches are reading this, and we're reading it today. So for Paul to say, Jesus, the one I've just described, in whom is all power and glory and majesty, he's the name above every other name, he's in charge, he's the head, the body responds to the head, right? He's in charge. He said that to the church in Ephesus, he's saying that to the church today. Three things that are emphasized in Christ's headship over the church, his lordship over the church in this passage, and I'll close with this. One thing, he's in supreme authority. He guides, he governs, he controls us. I've sat on committees in churches before where we meet for an hour, and at the end of it we say, okay, God, bless our plan. Don't raise your hand, but you've probably been there. And first time I heard that, I thought, wait a minute, whose plans are these? God's saying, you haven't really consulted me up to this point. You've been meeting for about an hour. You've come up with all these plans. You're telling me to bless them. Why don't you bless them? They're your plans. Did you seek me at all? God's in supreme authority. Christ, another thing that is emphasized is union. As close as the head is to the body, think about that. There's an intimate connection between the head and the body. The same is true in Jesus being the head over the church, which is his body. The body of Christ. And the third thought is the body is completely dependent on the head. The church, we are completely dependent on Christ. If you ever find yourself operating in your own power or control, change that quickly. Regularly examine, God, am I doing what you're leading me to do? Am I following the head or if I just got pointed in the right direction and ran ahead of it, I've been there. Be careful. The body derives its life, its power, its existence from the head. So Paul says, I pray the light switch will be turned on. I encourage you to revisit this passage this week. And just ask the question, God, are, are, is the eyes of my heart, have they been enlightened so that I see what it was Paul is praying for. Let's pray that together right now as we close. Father, as the Apostle Paul prayed, that the eyes of the heart of those in Ephesus would be opened, I pray that for us today, for myself, for the people gathered here, that the light bulb would be gone and we would see the hope of your calling. That without you we are hopeless and yet in you there's hope. There's hope of eternity but there's hope even today.
for the riches of the glory of your inheritance, what you've given us and what is ours in Christ. And the power, the dynamite that is living inside of us. God, help us to see that and walk in that every day in Christ's name.